Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. We're going to be going to 2 Kings this morning, the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be going to chapters 6 and 7 just a little bit later. Have you found 2 Kings? Today and this morning, we're going to get right into the Word. We're going to be talking about a life under siege this morning. But before we get to the Scriptures, God spoke to me yesterday. Let me tell you what He said to me. It's for someone here, or perhaps several someones. Now, this is the Word of the Lord for you. He spoke to me and told me to give this to someone this morning. He said this, sometimes the best time is the next time. Don't be afraid to try again. Now listen to me. God spoke to me and he told me that somebody's going to be here today that needs to hear that. So let me tell it to you one more time. I even wrote it down and put it up here. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. That sometimes the next time is the best time and don't be afraid to try again. You know, many times people go through something and they have a very difficult experience going through it and they just don't want to get back into it. It could be a relationship. It could be business. It could be be, you know, some situation, school or a job or, or you know, some, some conversation. Uh, it might be church. I don't know what it is. But listen, sometimes the last time was just not the best time and you don't want to do it again. You get a little bit, you know, afraid to do it again. But God is speaking. If this is you, if God's speaking to you, you know it. He's saying amen on the inside of you. And he's going to say it one more time through me because it pleases him through the foolishness of men saying stuff that it changes other people's lives. That's why he said in his word, sometimes the next time is the best time. Don't be afraid to try again, okay? So I'm going to encourage you to put all of your energy and all of your emphasis into whatever God wants you to do. He has something for you. Don't miss it. Are you ready for the word now, okay? The word now that we're going to preach, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share, is the word for all the rest of us, Paul. Okay? It's a, you know, that one was for somebody special, you know. Uh, sometimes next time's the best time. This one is for the rest of us. If that didn't float your boat, then you're going to find something here. Your job today is to get something from today. God's trying to build your life, trying to build your community, your family. He's trying to build his kingdom. God is a builder. He's trying his best to build things, and he's building it with us and through us and in us. We are built together as a holy habitation of the Lord. And so your duty, your responsibility is to come here to the storehouse of God and to find at least one brick every Sunday, every Wednesday, find at least one brick that you can take home and mortar in place in your life to continue building the life that God is pleased with. He wants to build us. He wants to strengthen us. That's what he is trying his best to do. And so this morning, he's going to have several bricks out here that you can take and put in a special place in your life to help build your life. In fact, for some of you, and it is my hope, that some of you are going to get two bricks. You're going to take one home and put it in your life, and you're going to give one to somebody else this week. Not throwing it at them. You're not going to take the Word of God and hit nobody in the face with it. Okay? That's not what it's for. You're going to offer it to them 
so that they can mortar it in place in their life so they won't be afraid of it. They won't be hurt by it. They're not going to wonder and be skeptical as to why you're giving it. You're going to give it to them out of love. You're going to give it to them out of concern. You're going to give it to them and encourage them to put it in their life to continue building their life. And we will be built together if we'll just do this. So today, find one thing at least for you. And if you can, take one with you for somebody else, all right? Well, today we're going to use a couple of interesting stories, okay? Uh, a couple of interesting battles. I love history. And there are two historical battles we're going to talk about today. And the strategy of these battles, we're going to talk about them and how they were won as a God victory for the cause of God because of some people who did some things. We're going to talk about how we can also learn today what we can do when our life is under siege. And believe me, the devil has his, he's doing his best to put us under siege. Now, we're going to learn three things. Number one, we're going to learn that, that life okay, is about going. Number two... That life is about getting, and number three, that life is about giving. That's what we're going to end up with, okay? So you can, you know, write that down perhaps, you know, and, and, and think about it uh, and, uh, while we talk about these two battles. These two historical battles were, you know, thousands of years apart, but they had one thing in common, and it is they both used a military tactic and a strategy known as a siege. What is a siege? Well, a siege is when one army surrounds a town or surrounds a group of people or surrounds another army and they just sit around them and wait them out. They isolate them and they cut them off from the outside world. They cut them off from hope and cut them off from help. And they just sit there and wait on them to either starve or surrender. That's what this siege is about. Without going into too much detail, the most well-orchestrated siege on U.S. soil took place during the American Civil War. The Civil War was 1861 to 1865. Some of you were there. Uh, <laughs> I saw how you walked in. <laughs> in the winter of 18... 62-63, right in the middle of this whole war, the American Civil War. In the middle of it, General Ulysses S. Grant, he was commanding some Union troops, a whole regiment, a whole battalion, a whole army. He had 70,000 soldiers under his command at that point. And he tried his best to attack one of the strongholds of the Confederate Army. It was the town of Vicksburg, Mississippi. He came at it from the north and tried to, but listen, Vicksburg was well fortified. You just, you know, 
And they had 30,000 troops on the inside firing back at the outside with cannons and guns. And, and, and General Grant, during that December, January, 1862-1863, just couldn't cut it. And he ended up having to withdraw, not in defeat, but certainly did not secure victory. He had to withdraw and sit back and say, what in the world happened? I have superior forces and I can't overcome them. They were just too well fortified. Well... It just so happened that Vicksburg was at a very important place in our nation. It sat on the Mississippi River. You see, long before airplanes and long before cars, long before even wagons or chariots, people traveled and news traveled and commerce traveled and militaries traveled by boat. And so when our nation was just a burgeoning nation, waterways were so important and cities and towns and villages and military posts would grow up around the waterways. And so whoever controlled the waterways controlled commerce, controlled news, controlled military, controlled everything. And it just so happened that Vicksburg, Mississippi sat on the biggest, strongest river in the United States, the mighty Mississippi. The mighty Mississippi starts up in upper Minnesota at Lake Itasca, and it winds down more than 2,300 miles, emptying out into the Gulf of Mexico, about 100 miles south of New Orleans. Well, right there in Vicksburg, Mississippi, it sat between Memphis, Tennessee, and New Orleans and controlled the whole commerce, the news, the military, everything. And it was controlled by the Confederate Army. Man, you couldn't do anything. Vicksburg sat on this high bluff. Right in the big bend, there's a huge bend. I mean, it just, it, 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 it makes a huge, more than a 90 degree. It makes, you know, it, it makes almost a 180 degree turn right there. And so Vicksburg sets right there. Going upstream, you couldn't make but two, maybe three knots. And so the cannons could just blow you away. Going downstream, you had to slow down for the narrowness and slow down for the curve. You could only make about five knots, six knots. And that's just not enough to avoid all the cannon fire coming out of there. And so Vicksburg held the Mississippi, and the Confederates held Vicksburg, and that was just the way it was. Well, it wasn't good enough for General Grant. There's not a doubt in my mind that God was doing something in his life. Whether he was aware of it or not, God was going to use him. God had a goal. God had a purpose. And God needed somebody to do something. And so you know what this crazy man did in the spring of 1863 he did something that no military person would ever imagine doing he took his 70,000 men across the Mississippi River and he marched them down through Louisiana swamps I mean through the swamps there was no hope of resupplying his army they couldn't get any more bullets they couldn't get any more food they couldn't get any more supplies they couldn't get any more reinforcements he marched them 30 miles down past Vicksburg and then crossed them back over the Mississippi River right into the heart of enemy territory and here he is with his 70,000 men. In those three weeks, 
He marched those men 180 miles. He fought five major battles and won those battles against superior Confederate forces. And he also captured 6,000 Confederate soldiers. Ended up, he come up from the south there to Vicksburg and just made a camp around the whole city. He laid siege to the city. Those 29,000, 30,000 Confederate soldiers, they all pushed back into the city and they got their guns ready. They thought, oh, we're going to do it like we did it last time. We're going to defeat him whenever he tries to come in here. We done whooped him once, we can whoop him again. Their backs to the river and the Union Army all around outside. But you see, Grant did not come to attack with soldiers. He came to attack with time. He came to attack with hunger. He came to lay siege. Oh, yeah, they set out there, and you know, from May the 18th, 1863, all the way to July the 4th, 1863, they set out there at the Union Army, you know, I mean, eating and drinking and, and you know, and having a little fun and shooting cannons and, you know, lobbing mortars and, and laughing at the folks on the inside. Well, all the time, the Confederate soldiers on the inside and the citizens of Vicksburg were starving to death. No one had ever seen this take place on this magnitude. And indeed, we haven't since. Grant just sat there. The citizens, civilian citizens of Vicksburg, dug more than 500 caves in the hills of Vicksburg trying to escape the bombardment of the cannons and, and all of the fire. And finally, on July the 4th, 1863... General Pemberton, commander of the Confederate forces at Vicksburg, surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant. And Vicksburg was taken. That, more than any other battle, more than any other location and place that the North took, changed the tide of the war. Because now... The Union forces controlled the mighty Mississippi. It wasn't long before New Orleans fell and all the other ones fell. And all of a sudden, the North began to have supply. And it divided the South on the east and the west of the Mississippi. Well, for 81 years after July the 4th, 1863 and Pemberton's surrender, for 81 years, the citizens of Vicksburg, Mississippi, refused to celebrate July the 4th. <laughs> Nonetheless, what Grant did to liberate the South and to do what God needed done to set free a people who had been in slavery and in bondage for generations... Almighty God had his hand in that moment, and Almighty God won that victory. Thanks be to God that deals with us even when we don't know it. The next war, the next military campaign we want to look at 
you'll find in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's about the year 835 B.C. Let me tell you who the players are. There is a king in Syria. He goes by the title of Ben-Hadad II. Why? Well, the word Ben means son of, and the word Hadad is the name of the Syrian god of thunder and storms. As many cultures do, they believed that their leader, their supreme leader, was a god or a son of a god. And so that's how they identified them. It is basically a title. You know, he is the son of the god of thunder and storms. He is our leader. I mean, who wouldn't want a leader like that? (laughs) So, the next player is King Jehoram. He is the king of Israel. He lives in Samaria, about 40 to 45 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where the king of Israel's headquarters was. You remember, king of Israel, king of Judah. Two different kingdoms. Judah, was their, their, their headquarters was at Jerusalem. Remember the two sets of kings they keep talking about, king of Israel, king of Judah? This was the king of Israel, King Jehoram. And living up there with King Jehoram is another player. His name is Elisha. He's a prophet. And then we're going to also read about four nameless leprous men. They were lepers, four of them. Let me set the scene for you, okay? About 835 years or so before Christ, these Kingdoms were always having problems and, 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 and always at one another. It just seems very interesting. They would make leagues and then they would fight with each other. Well, ben, uh, Ben-Hadad, the king Ben-Hadad II, he heard that Israel had been hiring people and they were conspiring against him and he was afraid they were going to come into Syria up to Damascus and take his kingdom. And so before they could do that, He marched his troops down from Damascus about 100, 110 miles to the city of Samaria. And there he laid siege to Samaria. He surrounded the city. He cut them off from any hope, from any help. And his goal was not to fight them because he knew that people that fought with Israel had to fight with their God. And he didn't want to fight with the God of Israel. He was afraid of the God of Israel. So what I'll do is I'll just sit out here. And if they come out here, I'll pick them off one by one. But I'm not going to storm the city. I'm going to sit out here and starve them out. And so months and months and months went by. And the people inside the city of Samaria began to starve. And people began to die. Some horrible, horrible things happened among the people in the city. You can read about it. One of the things toward the end of the siege is that two women were so hungry They were just trying to stay alive and they decided and they made an agreement with these two women that we will kill both of our young children one at a time. We will kill them, we will boil them, and we will eat them. I'll do mine first, you do yours next. Okay, they said, they agreed. And so one woman killed her son, boiled him, and they ate him. I'm not making this up, it's right there in the word. They ate him. 
When it came time for the second one to kill her husband, she said, nope, changed my mind. I'm not going to do it. First woman got so upset, she went out in public. She saw the king walking by, and she began to berate the first woman. She said, King Jehoram, king, 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 listen to my trouble. I want you to judge this for me. Everything is going so bad here. And she told him what happened. I killed my son. We boiled him and ate him. And now it's time for her to kill her son, and she won't do it. I want you to make a decree that she has to give me her son so I can eat him. The king said, oh, my goodness. That's not really probably what he said, but I'll just say that. You can read what he said, but he, had, he was a little bit more colorful than that. He said, what in the world? He was at his wit's end. He was watching all of his family starve and all of his nation deteriorate, and there was nothing he could do. He couldn't go out and fight. He couldn't overcome them, and here he is stuck in a city, and everyone is starving. He did not know what to do, and he was mad. He was real mad. He just wasn't sure who to be mad at, but he decided I'm going to be mad at God. I'm going to be, because God could fix this. You ever see somebody that gets mad at God because God could fix something and he didn't? God could fix this. I'm mad. But I tell you what, I can't really slap God. So the best thing I can do because I'm not getting what I want, I can kill his preacher. And I think that's what I'm going to do. In fact, he said, May God kill me and send me to hell if I don't take the head of Elisha today because I know that Elisha is the man of God and God listens to Elisha. And if Elisha was to ask God, God would do something. And since he's not doing it, since he's not helping me, he's my problem. I'm going to kill him. I know logic is not necessarily the thing people reach for whenever they're angry like this and they don't know what to do. Well, uh, it may seem strange, but, you know, I've lived long enough to hear a few people blame God for their problems or even blame preachers for their problems. Hello? That's the truth. When they aren't getting what they want, uh, I'm so glad you guys aren't like that. You know, Jesus said, and John and, 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 and the Apostle Paul said, you know, preachers are easy targets. You know, and sometimes people will think they're doing God a favor whenever they just do their best to, to discredit or destroy or to knock down the preacher because he's, you know, because they're not getting what they want. Now, thank you for loving me. Okay. I'm so glad I didn't live back in, in this day. I wouldn't have lasted very long. Okay. You got the scene. Let's go to the word. Second Kings chapter six, verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head. Now, a donkey is an unclean animal. You don't eat them in the first place, let alone their heads. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab. The word cab, that is the smallest dry measurement that they had at that time. One-fourth of the smallest dry measurement of dove droppings. Do you know what we're talking about? Most likely it was pigeon poo. 
Hey, that's the best I could find out from research yesterday. Okay, it was being sold for five shekels of silver. Okay? Whew. It was bad in Samaria. During this time, that's when these women approached the king. And the king didn't know what to do. He had never heard of anything like that. Verse 31, then he, King Joram, said, God do so to me and more if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. I'm going to take his head off. I'm going to kill him. Now may God do that to me. May God kill me and more. What more can you do than be killed? Sent to hell. May God kill me and separate my soul from him forever if I don't take that guy's head off today. So he went down to his house, going to kill him. When he got there, Elisha says, hold on a second. Give God one more day. Because about this time tomorrow, food's going to be so plentiful that the finest flour will be sold for nearly nothing. Barrels of it will be in your city gates, and you won't have to pay hardly anything for it. Well, nobody believed him. But the king's going to give him one more day. I mean, he, he can't go anywhere. 2 Kings 7, verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why sit we here till we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city. If we, you know, and we'll just die there. And if we sit here, we'll also die. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we will live. And if they kill us, hey, we're just going to die anyway, so what's the big deal? Verse 5, and they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. Now, you know they didn't just do this on their own. They didn't think this up on their own. Y'all know that, right? Hello? Look at me. They, these aren't four genius men sitting here, okay? These are four normal, ordinary men in the middle of a siege. On top of that, they have leprosy. They're outcasts. They're outside the city. I mean, I mean they're not geniuses. The Spirit of God is moving on their life. They just don't know it. Just like, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, the, he wasn't a genius. The Spirit of God was moving on the inside of him and got him to do a crazy thing. Okay? Got him to do something nobody else would do, nobody else had done, and God made it work for him. It's the same thing with these leprous men. They're going to do something that no sane person would do. They're going to get up and they, as if life wasn't bad enough. They're going to get up and go toward the army of the Syrians. They have leprosy. Syrians are not going to want them in their camp. There's no hope they're going to live. God had to be holding back some of the logic from their brains. As he must be doing for me sometimes because I've done some stupid things that worked. God's moving on them. They got up at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. <laughs> 
For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of the horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us kings of the Hittites and kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore, the army of Ben-Hadad, they got up and they ran at midnight. They fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, their donkeys... And they ran, they fled for their lives. You see, it was a God thing. Verse 8. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent. They ate and they drank and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing. And then they went and hid what they had gotten. And they came back, entered into another tent, and carried some from there also and went and hid it. <laughs> They're just having them a high old time, aren't they? Yeah, woo, yeah. What good is a party, though, when you're all by yourself? Come on. What good would heaven be if you're the only one that made it? Okay. Well, I mean, it'd be good. You'd still eat and drink and have silver and gold. But, <laughs> but come on. Look what they're saying. God's still working on their heart here. They got a little overwhelmed with getting. <laughs> okay. Sometimes we can get a little overwhelmed with silver and gold. <laughs> okay. Sometimes we can get a little overwhelmed with, with, with deliverance and our life change. Sometimes we can get a little overwhelmed with that. Well, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will surely come to us. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You can read the rest of the story. They went and told, and, 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 and the king sent people out and found out it was true. And the whole city ran out there and, and got food and aid and, and they got clothes and they got weapons and they got silver and they got gold. And so that day, that, that, that next day, in the gates of the city, they were carrying so much food. And they were, I mean, it was awesome. It was, I mean, it, it was amazing. What deliverance can come in one moment from the hand of God? God knows what he's doing, and God knows how to get it done. There are three things, however, we learn from both of these accounts and also from the whole compilation of the Word of God. And that is, if anything's going to get done, somebody's got to go. Number one, you remember life is about going? Yeah, go. Everybody say go. go. You know two-thirds of God is go. Go, go. God wanted a victory. He wanted the victory over the South. He wanted to set his people free, but he had to have somebody that was willing to go. He needed somebody. If, if, if somebody hadn't got up and went, we'd just sit there with a good idea. Go. General Grant got up and went. He did not let his earlier defeats or his earlier losses dictate his future. He knew that if he wanted victory, he had to go. These four lepers were sitting there doing nothing. Why do we sit here just dying? Let's get up and go, they said. And they got up and they went. Let me encourage you. Go. Go to God. Go to the Word. Go to church. Go to work. Hello? Get up and go. Why are you laying there? Why are you sitting there? 
if you need some medical attention, go to the doctor. Go. You need some food, go to the grocery store. You can sit in one place hungry, knowing that there's plenty of food right down there at Market Basket, and you can die of starvation because you won't go. You need an education, you're going to have to go to school. Everybody say go. go. Oh, this is good stuff. Okay, I got to finish up here, okay? That's what they did. The Bible said that they said, let's go and tell. It's a good day. What are we doing sitting there? I mean, this is good news. We need to go and tell, you know, on purpose. Number two, get. Now, a lot of people go, but some of them don't get. I know it's none of you, but do you know there are people that go to church and don't get nothing out of it? That'd be like going to work and not getting a paycheck. We go, we're supposed to get. You go to the Word, you go to prayer, you know, you're supposed to get. You get answers from God. You, you know, I mean, if you go to church, you need to get something. You need to go knowing you're going to get. And you need to, whenever you go, you need to be conscious that I'm getting something from this. When I go to prayer, I'm going to get something. When I go to the Word, I'm going to get something. When I go to the store, I'm going to get something. <laughs> you can walk around the store all day long and go out empty-handed. You can come to church for 40 years and never get a thing. God wants us to get. You see, that's what, that's exactly what Grant did. He went, he got. He got 50. Do you know what he got? The Naval Journal records what he got. Okay? He got 58,000 pounds of black powder from Vicksburg. He got 50,000 shoulder weapons. He got... 600,000 rounds of ammunition. He got 29,500 prisoners. He got 254 cannons. That equaled 11% of all of the Confederate cannons that had been cast during the whole war. I mean, he got, he got, he went, he got, he got it. He got Vicksburg. You go, you get. If you're not getting when you're going, you may not be going to the right place. Or you may not be getting while you're there. I won't stick on that any longer, okay? But you, when you go, get. That's what those lepers, lepers did. They went and they got they got food. They got, I mean, they got, they got, they got, they took it and they hit it. And they got, they got, they got, they got, they got, okay? You see, life is all about going. Life is all about getting. And life is all about giving. The story would not be finished if it wasn't for the fact that General Grant gave everything he got to the Union soldiers and the army so that they could boost their warfare campaign and win the war between the North and the South. Praise the name of the living God. Amen? And as well, these lepers, they would not be heroes of the Bible if they'd just gone and got. But they went, they got, and they gave. They gave everything else 
to the whole nation of Israel, to the king and to everybody else. Listen, giving is the final part of getting. It's just the way it is. God needs you. God needs you to go. He needs you to get. And he needs you to give. And he will stir on the inside of you. Don't think it's something foreign. And don't imagine you're a genius. It's God on the inside of you. Encouraging you to do something that other people may not do. Go. At the very least, go to church. At the very least, get a word from God. At the very least, give it to someone as a testimony. That's the very least we can do. God wants us to go. He wants us to get. And he wants us to give. And remember, sometimes the best time is the next time. Okay? Don't be afraid to try again.